Preserving the Threads of Chinese Martial Arts. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what we're going to do at Kung Fu Podcast, and I'm your host, T.W. Smith. I greatly appreciate you joining me today, and in this episode, we're going to be taking a trip back first to the 1990s, where the author of The Sword Polisher is trying to preserve the remnants of traditional Kung Fu. Before we begin, if this is your first time to Kung Fu Podcast, welcome. You're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that put in a great deal of sweat, they put in a great deal of care of honing their craft. The library of podcasts here are going to cover many systems and as well as cover various types of research that you can use to improving your martial arts. The Sword Polisher's record was written by Adam Shu back in 1998. Adam Shu was born in Shanghai in 1941, and at eight years old, his family had moved them to Taiwan and then moved to San Francisco in 1978. At that time, he had spent over 20 years studying Chinese martial arts. If you're interested in the principles of Chinese martial arts or the principles of almost any traditional martial arts, you will find that his work is quite informative. Xu does not mention in his preface what led him into the martial arts besides stating that he began learning from his father. He's an accomplished author of hundreds of articles and several books on Chinese martial arts. Xu states that when he arrived in 1978 into San Francisco, he wanted to, quote, promote and preserve the ancient arts, end quote. So here we are listening to a man who was 40 years ago already trying to preserve the traditional Chinese martial arts. Xu had earned his master's degree in Chinese literature in Taiwan, where he also taught Kung Fu and Chinese literature. In some aspects, Xu was a Chinese martial arts renaissance man, trained in traditional Chinese martial arts and well-educated. Historically, only two others of such prominence leaped to my mind that had this rare combination back in the old days. Tang Hao, perhaps my favorite from the 1920s, and Sun Lutong, who I did a full five-part biographical series starting with Kung Fu Podcast number 132, and it goes through 135. Well, by 1980, she was writing articles for Black Belt Magazine, which is where I had seen portions of his work when I could find the magazine near Fort Bragg, Fayetteville, North Carolina. And you might want to know that finding Black Belt Magazine was not an easy task in rural North Carolina back in the 80s. Shu stated that at the time, nearly all those years ago, that there were unqualified instructors that were promoting false histories, self-created family histories and lineages, and as well as the secret teaching myth. Not to mention that this new emphasis on media, TV, movies, and choreographed images, and what they were having on the perception of the Chinese martial arts at the time. If you would like to delve into those areas a little bit, bit more, and they are something to study if you're in the Chinese martial arts, Kung Fu Podcast number 165, The Entanglements of Lineages, and 166, 
the social analogies or lineages necessary to pass down Chinese martial arts. Then lastly, and several times throughout the book, Xu will point to the Chinese government's production of this modern wushu as a contributor to the destruction of the Chinese martial arts of the time, or traditional wushu, as he will often refer to it. So during this podcast, I'm going to be clear between traditional wushu, or traditional kung fu, and modern wushu. What Xu stated back in the 90s was the government-approved versions of Chinese martial arts movements. His original column, titled The Sword Polisher's Record, was an effort to, quote, restore Kung Fu's definition, purity, principles, and basic theory, end quote. Now, the book is a collection of a majority of those articles, and it's divided into eight sections, just over 200 pages. When Xu was writing the book, he appeared to be writing to the same people who would have enjoyed his articles in Black Belt magazine, someone who enjoys reading core materials, not trying to be sold the next foo-foo secret technique or the secret lethal pressure point system. It is written for someone who wants a transparent, authentic, and sincere approach. Unfortunately, when they were marking the book, that isn't as readily apparent in the description of the sales pages. A couple of the reviews that I found reflected this global approach to the martial arts. Some liked it, some didn't. Yet, the concentration on the pillars of the martial arts are there, and it's less about learning a style of a particular system. For example, one reviewer stated that, It's hard for me to properly rate this book, as I am certainly not the intended audience for it. He continues, It was somewhat painful for me to read this. It is a collection of articles while organized do not guide one through an instructional process, which makes the book less engaging for the reader. The book does contain good information for the martial artist that's new to Kung Fu or new to traditional martial arts in general. Overall, we need more scholarly works on the traditional Chinese martial arts in the West, and Xu provides a great deal of wisdom. This book was published in 1998 when such works were incredibly rare in English. And now, nearly 20 years later, we are finally starting to see more attention come to this. End of review. This scholarly approach is the majority of what I share here at Kung Fu Podcast. Shu offered a solid platform for this in the 1990s, and he took his share of criticism for taking that position. Much like the reviewer said, you're not really going to learn his style. However, if you wanted to learn some of the pillars of the Chinese martial arts, and you were going to set up a course, here's some of the things that you're going to find in this particular work. Different styles have flavors. This was actually brought out in the Wu Beiji, or what we know as the Bubishi more popularly. There are basic building blocks which are similar from style to style. You have to learn to build a vocabulary. For example, what does reeling silk mean? Or what is the tiger's mouth? Or Peng Jin or Jeet? All right, these are things that you have to know in order to study Chinese martial arts. Uh, the core mechanics of movement, for example, Bufa, the, the footwork that you're going to be doing and why you're doing it. Xiaofa, the intercepting, the striking, the throwing, and things like that. What kind of physical upper body techniques do you need to learn through your waist and uh, upward? Practical Chi Na, 
and as well as the objectives of engagement. Uh, one of the podcasts, Kung Fu Podcast number 145, is all about the decision-making processes through recognizing that there is a confrontation and the objectives that lie behind it. The point is, is here we are over 40 years later, and we're continuing to take the Chinese martial arts and attempting to restore as much as the pre-19th century authenticity to it. That's why I want to bring this work to your attention as an older reference that points to the past, but was in many ways a beacon for the future, the one that we're in now. Let's summarize some of the content. Xu stated that at the time he began writing in around 1980, the sword polisher's record was trying to promote and preserve the ancient arts. It is arguable that Black Belt Magazine was doing more to promote different types of martial arts, but dare say not traditional martial arts. I physically went through some of the late 1970s up and through the 90s magazine covers, and here's what I found. There were numerous magazines completely dedicated to ninjutsu, the mystery behind its popularity, the ninjutsu children, the ninjas of the future, the reigning ninja master, let's loose. Then there was plenty on sports, the reign of the Gracie Terror ends, sport karate trio, anything that you could imagine, taekwondo. Uh, there was plenty of covers associated with entertainment and movies. Chuck Norris on anything from fighting, food to fitness. Steven Seagal knocking out opponents at the box office. And of course, numerous Bruce Lee references and his movies. There were plenty of covers associated with the secrets. The secret unlocking power. The secret knockout strikes. The secret styles of fill in the blank. The secret, I made this up and now I'm a master as well. Um, there was plenty of those. This would cover nearly 90% of all the magazine covers I looked through during that time span. Some of the smaller print titles, you know, the ones where I have to take my little bifocal <laughs> to read, are things like The Relaxed Power of Choli Foot or Strength Training with Martial Arts. So it's not that they didn't have some articles, but... You know, you really had to dig past the ninjutsu children uh, in order to get to strength training with your martial arts because those were not the titles they were using to sell the magazine or promoting the martial arts. They were in-case-you-were-interested articles. Adam Shu, at best, was going to be a whisper in a whirlwind, and the majority of his effort would be to preserve traditional Chinese martial arts to whatever extent he could through that platform. Looking back, the last time that someone's really taken on the whirlwind was Tong Hao during the early 1900s. His efforts were not received very well at all. In fact, I would highly encourage you to listen to Kung Fu Podcast number 34 to hear all about Tong Hao. In general, for me, I liked how the book was written. It is in an English conversational tone. I was at first concerned that it was going to be like an academic tone, which I read many of those types of essays and works on a regular basis. And that can really get tiring. <laughs> but 
Shu actually does a fantastic job of using chosen words that get to the heart of what could be some very complex topics. There are a few sections that get very relaxed in the tone and the language he uses, where a tone of referencing academics would have been much more engaging if they existed at the time. Hey, I want to take a moment and say thank you for supporting Kung Fu Podcast. When you support me in this program, not only are you helping me offset the cost and deliver the program, you're supporting two very important other organizations. First is the ASPCA. Kung Fu Podcast is registered as one of the protectors of animals that are facing cruelty. And I do everything I can in supporting their work. The other... We are a proud supporter of the Wounded Warrior Project, helping these people who are putting their lives on the line to keep us safe. If you'd like to listen to one of the highlighted stories of this, go to Kung Fu Podcast number 73 and listen to the incredible story of Steve Vasquez. If you'd like to support this program, you can go to patreon.com forward slash twsmith or just go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash support. And I have a laundry list of things there that you could look at. And in some cases, support this program and it won't cost you a penny. I appreciate everything that you do and try to pass it down to others who may need the help. As we return to the Sword Polishers Review, one aspect of this book that it is important to remember is that Shu didn't have the wealth of resources to point to the way we have today, the way that I point to Dr. Ben Junkins or Professor Shahar. You know, he was looking at documents such as General Chi Kong's book or Tang Hao specifically as a resource. However, his messages were not new to many traditional martial artists at that time because my instructors would make me drill with the similar messages. That is part of the reason that I really respected Shu's work because I could hear the same messages in his work. For example, inserting philosophy where physical skill is supposed to reside is one of the comments that Shu would make, and it's absolutely battling philosophy is not traditional Chinese martial arts. This was trained to me in understanding how to physically interpret the classics. And I was required, just like my classmates were, physically interpret what the old writing means. Don't explain it to me. Treat me like I'm from Missouri. Show me. This unique time slot in history is partly what makes this book a shelf keeper. It sets tones and arguments before there was a real platform of martial arts studies. Part one, Knocking on the Kung Fu Door, is where Shu discusses contemporary 1990s and the traditional Kung Fu. He also will go into the role of the yin and yang of understanding Chinese martial arts. When you knock on the door of a traditional Chinese martial arts school, you should be prepared to dedicate at least a couple of years to training. Even if you are young, athletic, and maybe more if you're experienced in other things. In my viewpoint, at least witnessing some of my classmates, I had one very clear advantage when I began the martial arts. I was not formally trained in any other types of martial arts. My dad was a Golden Glove boxer. I played football and, of course, a lot of wrestling. So hitting you or having collisions and impacts with you, I was absolutely good with, and that helped as well. 
When people ask me, for example, how long will it take for me to learn, fill in the blank. I usually respond, it's going to depend upon how well you listen, how well you pay attention, how much you practice, how well you practice, how inclined you are to make it through the grind, and if you are in outstanding in all of those areas, then you can figure a good year or so to learn a particular style. And I have never met anyone outstanding in all areas, especially if, for example, if you have a job, a girlfriend, or if you go to school. Shu discusses how traditional Kung Fu emphasizes the combining of power, grace, and agility, all three. These are not easy qualities to master on their own, by themselves. Combining them isn't easy either, especially when you're trying to put them in the appropriate dosage to meet your objective. One of the phrases that Shu uses in the book that I was very glad to hear because I don't hear very many Chinese martial arts use it anymore is Yung Dong, Y-U-N-D-O-N-G, Yung Dong. Shu first shares it on page 16, and he does an excellent job in that voice I was saying to you earlier in explaining it. Yung Dong is a phrase in traditional Wushu, or old-timey Kung Fu, that separates it from other forms of activities. It is a cultural component of the Chinese martial arts. The two terms, dong, is easily translated as the action of the body and mobility. Most English translations of dong are, for example, athletics, sports, recreation, and exercise. The body is physically in action. Yun, is usually translated as awareness, focus, breathing, and circulation. In general, Dong is referring to the fascia, the bones, and the structure of the body, whereas Yun is referring to your organs, the neurology, and the somatosensory functions, your ability to sense and your ability to feel. Your traditional Chinese martial arts should possess both qualities during your practice as you remember what you are practicing for, what is your intent. Unfortunately, as Shu points out again and again throughout the book, we have to use qualifiers such as traditional or modern wushu because the Chinese government had sanctioned modern wushu, does not incorporate their traditional yun, the heart, spirit, and intention of their traditional kung fu. The modern wushu focuses on performance and presentation. Hence, by many, it is simply recognized as Chinese ballet. Now, if you don't believe me, and some of the reviewers don't, in fact, they found that rather insulting when Shu wrote that 40-some years ago, I would suggest you go listen to one of the modern wushu champions, Sarah Chang and how she trained and why she eventually took up the training of combative martial arts and what she found in the differences as being a champion modern wushu performer and then what it was to actually learn Yundong in a Chinese martial arts system. That is all explained in Kung Fu Podcast number 82.
many times on this podcast and every time at the older podcast of Tibetan Kung Fu, you would hear me say, we practice Kung Fu to be a better person first and a better martial artist second. Traditional Kung Fu has three purposes, to practice for health, to practice for the show and the beauty of it, and then also from the practical martial arts. You wanted to learn them, and most importantly is know which one you are practicing. You know, when you're practicing for health and the performance and the showmanship of it, for example, when you see the dragon dancing, for example, would be a good one, is know what you're trying to practice and what you're practicing for. And your martial arts instructor should be able to tell you that specifically. My experience of knocking on the Kung Fu door was remarkably and gratefully similar to what Shu described. But not everyone held that standard in the 1970s through the 90s. So that brings us to a close of the purpose, the preface, and part one of Adam Shue's work, The Sword Polisher's Record. I believe that this book is well worth the read, and it's also worth keeping on your shelf for reference, mostly because it's got some really good material and the time slot that it was published for those of you members, you'll be able to download in great detail the expanded version where we're going to go into part two, the foundation of Kung Fu, mapping the Kung Fu DNA, understanding and developing a personal constitution. And what's it all about developing power when you're looking at it exclusively from a Chinese martial arts perspective? We'll go into part three. Myth and realities of the Kung Fu styles that Adam Shu brings up in his book. For example, the myths of the Shaolin Kung Fu, which we've discussed here in previous podcasts. I like the little section called Counterfeit Kung Fu. And an argument that my students will sometimes make. Can't all of these styles just be one? Then there's a fantastic section, part four, titled The Role of Forms in Kung Fu. Is it necessary? What's the issue when you have these forms without content? What we'll be covering next is going to be part five, mind and body training and the risks of special training. Part six, the soul of Kung Fu. Adam Shu states, the soul of Kung Fu is in its usage. And we're going to go into detail about that. Part seven, masters and students, belt levels, and, for example, other things that uh, would be included in proper Chinese martial arts classes. Then part eight, Kung Fu today and tomorrow, and thinking that this was written 40 years ago. So with that, we'll be closing the public version of this particular podcast, and you can get the whole thing downloaded over at Patreon over at Kung Fu Podcast. I would recommend this book as a solid read for anyone who would like to have a workman's approach to Chinese martial arts and get a realistic idea of what you can expect to gain. Thank you for letting me be part of your martial arts journey. Have a fantastic practice today, and I'll be talking with you again real soon.